0: All right, well, good morning, everyone. Morning. We're uh, starting a new study today, so that's always exciting anytime we get to move into a new study. And if you were here last week, Pastor Fry has already given you a little bit of a preview of what we're going to be looking at. Um, but we're starting a new book. It's called The Christian Looks at Himself. I believe there are several copies in the bookstore if you want to pick one up. Um, there should be a few copies. I, I don't know that there are a whole lot, so it'll be first come, first serve. So whoever's fastest to the bookstore <laughs> will get a copy. But um, this book is written by Anthony Hokema, and it was initially published in 1975. So it's not you know, the latest and greatest book at the bookstore. It's been around for a while. And as Pastor Fry mentioned last week, Um, Anthony Hokema, uh, the author, comes from a Dutch Reformed background. He was born in the Netherlands in 1913, and then he immigrated to the United States with his family to Michigan, and he lived there for a good part of his life. He was a professor at Calvin Theological Seminary in Grand Rapids, Michigan, for 21 years. And he wrote a number of books, quite a few, actually, but this one in particular is specifically concerned with the need for Christians to maintain a positive self-image. Now, for many of us, when we hear people talk about the need to have a positive self-image or to maintain high self-esteem or positive thinking, um, our alarm bells start to go off a little bit, right? Uh, Because we live in a culture that's self-obsessed. We, so we hear this stuff a lot, but it's typically not coming from a Christian point of view. It's typically coming from a worldly point of view. Um, we live in a culture that worships the self and embraces all types of sin in the name of living out your authentic self or being true to yourself, you know, uh, pursuing your desires. Um, all you have to do is look at uh, magazine covers, for example, to see how much our culture uh, emphasizes the need to focus on yourself and whatever you're interested in, right? There's a magazine for everybody, and it's all about, you know, things that you want to do, and it's very focused on on the self. Um, we have entire sections of the library, if you go to the library or bookstores, you know, if you run down to Barnes and Noble uh, or another bookstore, uh, entire sections are dedicated to self-help, right? Or uh, self-esteem. Uh, The newest thing, it seems like, is, uh, or the newest term is self-love. You know, you hear this self-love all the time. You need to love yourself. Um, Movies, uh, TV shows, celebrate characters who pursue their personal desires. Whether it's romantic relationships, it's wealth or fame, um, or any other number of desires. You know, one of the uh, exercises you can do, uh, whenever you're watching shows, is to think about the characters and think about what their motivations are, right? Anyone who ever sets out to write a story, whether it's a book or a show, um, you know, one of the key elements of story writing is defining what are the characters' goals, what drives that character, what causes them to make the decisions they make or do the things they do. You have to have very clear goals for characters to have a good story, Well, if you watch most of the shows that are out there and you think about what is this character's goal, you know, what causes them to make their choices, it's almost always selfish, right? Most of what we see today uh, celebrates people pursuing whatever is in their own self-interest. It's very rare that you come across um, stories, uh, whatever the medium form may be, where you have characters that actually consistently act Uh, based on the interest of others and and put the interest of others ahead of themselves. Certainly very rare that you see stories where people are living to honor and glorify God, right, above self. Um, It's almost unheard of. And so when you do see those examples, they really stick out. Like you might be able to think of some stories uh, where you've seen that and it's been really effective because it it stands out from the rest. Um, So it's actually kind of shocking in our culture, when you see examples of people putting other people ahead of themselves and their own self interest, um, you know, that's, it's rare to see that elevated as a moral virtue. And so, when we see the author here, uh, Hokema, making his central point that Christians need to maintain a positive self image, uh, we tend to look around at our culture and uh, even the culture within the church in, in a lot of instances and think, no, if anything, you know, we probably need to hear the opposite message. We need to be less focused on self, less uh, focused on, you know, a positive identity. Um, But the Christian's need for a positive self-argument is the, or the positive self-image is the argument that the author is putting forward in this book. And make no mistake, it is an argument. Um, one of my favorite um, things to listen to, it's sort of like a podcast, is um, Al Moler's Thinking in Public. I don't know if you're familiar with that uh, program. You know, a lot of you are probably familiar with Al Moler, president of Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, um, from his uh, daily briefing podcast that he puts out uh, each weekday. It's about 20 minutes talking about the news of the day and breaking it down uh, from a Christian worldview. Well, he also does a program called Thinking in Public, and it's not on a regular basis, but it probably averages about one a month that he does. But in that program, he sits down with an author of a recent book that's come out and he interviews them. And it's really helpful because he does something similar to what he does with the news. He walks through the book and he breaks it down from a Christian worldview. You know, what are the themes in this book that are important? What can we learn from it? And and he always points out this fact that every book is written by someone and that someone is making an argument. They're trying to convince you or persuade you of something or at least to get you to think about what they consider to be important. And so similar to what I mentioned about you know looking at characters and trying to understand what their goals are in stories, uh, similar to that when we read books we can think okay what is the argument that's being made here? And do I agree with that argument, or, or disagree? Or maybe I agree with some, disagree with others. Um, but you know, another thing Muller always brings out is that reading a book, is, it's almost like having a conversation with the author. Right? The author makes his, uh, his or her points. You take those in. You think about them, um, evaluate you know, how you feel. And it's almost like you're having a conversation, or it should be. And, it, and what's good about that, is that it hopefully helps to sharpen our thinking at least about that particular topic or deepen our understanding It gets us to think um, we may agree with everything the author says we may agree with some disagree with others, um, but it's the, that process of engaging the arguments uh, that helps us to clarify and strengthen our own beliefs and so With this in mind, as we walk through the introduction of the book, particularly if you pick it up and read through it, um, it's important for us to clearly understand the argument that the author is making and then we can evaluate whether or not um, it has merit. In our case, the author actually does us a favor in that he makes the argument very plain for us to see so that we can consider it. Uh, He does so both at the beginning of the introduction and at the end. So, in the opening paragraph of the introduction, he says, How should a Christian think about himself? Should his self-image be primarily negative or positive? Should a Christian, in thinking about himself, lay primary stress on his continued sinfulness, or should his primary emphasis be on his newness in Christ? Then, If you read through the introduction, when you get to the end, in the final sentences, he gives his argument. He says, When the Christian faith is accepted in its totality, that faith brings with it a predominantly positive self-image. To demonstrate that this is so will be the main purpose of this book. So there you have it. Hokuma's main argument here is that Christian faith teaches Christians to have a predominantly positive self-image. Christians should think positively of themselves. Well, how how does that make you feel? (laughs) What what do you think about it? Does it make you feel positive? Well, uh, you know, I'll let you off the hook. Uh, I'll admit that when I started reading the introduction, uh, I was a bit taken aback by the proposition. Um, it sounded a little bit new-agey to me, this whole, you know, positive thinking type type deal. Um, and, you know, we, we're a Reformed church, so I think this maybe uh, hits us a little different than it does some people. Um, we tend to have a very strong focus on the sinfulness of man um, and man's need for salvation. Um, and so when we talk about having this predominantly positive self-image, I think we need to be really careful about how we understand that, um, but let's let Hokema make his argument, so let's, let's walk through that a bit. Um, throughout the introduction, Hokema cites a number of secular psychologists, particularly early on, in support of the need of a positive self-image, which immediately causes any biblically-minded Christian to raise his or her eyebrows. Um, however, if you continue reading through the introduction, He regularly makes it a point to balance this by pointing out that the secular humanist worldview, the humanist philosophy, always falls short of being able to provide a proper basis for people to maintain a positive self-image because it doesn't come from God's word and it's not founded upon biblical principles. Um, Further, secular humanism fails to explain why maintaining a positive self-image is morally good as opposed to just being evolutionarily expedient, for example. Um, you know, a secular philosophy can't explain why is you know, having a positive self-image objectively a good thing, morally a good thing. And so we need something more in order to truly uh, think through this topic of the self-image or the positive self-image. Um, earlier in the preface of the book, Uh, He just has a very short preface prior to the introduction. Uh, The author states that modern secular books stress the value of a positive self-image on a purely humanistic basis, but he's concerned to deal with the problem in a distinctively Christian way and to show that the Bible teaches us to have a positive image of ourselves because we're new creatures in Christ. So it's very important that we keep this in mind and that we see his full argument here. Um, we can see where Hokema is coming from when he makes his arguments. Uh, his goal is to supplant humanistic arguments in favor of maintaining a positive self-image with biblical arguments for the same. And this is important because you know, if the Bible teaches on this topic, then we shouldn't cede that ground to secular psychology. Um, we ought to claim that ground from a biblical standpoint and understand what God has said about it. But you may ask, all the same, is that really what we need to be focused on? In the midst of a culture that encourages us every day to worship and idolize ourselves, uh, to forsake everything else in the pursuit of pleasures and personal fulfillment, do we really need more encouragement toward a positive self-image? Probably already have a pretty inflated self-image as it is. Um, The idea that we are sinful creatures who deserve to fall under God's wrath who are by nature enemies of God and children of wrath, who desperately need to repent of sin and humble ourselves before the Lord, is completely lost on this world. The truth that on our best day we deserve nothing more than death, hell, and the grave is lost on this world. But Hokema didn't write this book for the world. He wrote it for Christians, specifically. Those who have been raised to newness of life in Jesus Christ. And given his background, we know that he's particularly focused on reformed Christians, like ourselves, who generally have taken sin very seriously, as we should. And so, as we discussed, we need to look at the particular argument he's making and determine whether or not he has a point that we should consider more closely. And so, what again is the argument the author's making? Well, we can go back once more to that preface that I mentioned he says specifically, I'm concerned to deal with this problem in a distinctively Christian way and to show that the Bible teaches us to have a positive image of ourselves because we are new creatures in Christ. As one of my former co-workers used to say, that part right there, you know, that, that is what uh, is important to keep in mind. We are new creatures in Christ, and it's in that that we find a positive self-image. Uh, The reason Christians ought to have a positive self-image is not because they are good or have any worth in and of themselves. It's because God has made them new creatures in Christ. Christians have a positive identity because their identity is in Christ. The author then takes this point that Christians have a positive identity or self-image specifically because they have been redeemed by Christ. And he elaborates on the necessity for Christians to keep this in view and to maintain a balanced self-image. So quoting from the introduction, he says, if we who, if we who claim to be Christians are honest with ourselves, we shall have to admit that many of us tend to have a self-image that over the negative. Many of us commonly see ourselves through the purple-colored glasses of depravity sometimes even called total depravity. I do not deny that according to the scriptures we are all by nature depraved or sinful in every aspect of our being. But the same scriptures teach us about redemption and renewal. Sad to say, however, many of us tend to look only at our depravity and not at our renewal. So here we start to get a clear look at the problem the author is seeking to address. He's warning about balance, or rather lack of balance, in the way that we view ourselves. He's effectively saying that Christians do a good job of pointing out and acknowledging our depraved, sinful nature, but often don't do a good job of acknowledging our new nature, having been redeemed by Christ. We're good at preaching against the sin of pride, but weaker when it comes to acknowledging the value that we have in the eyes of our Redeemer. I'm not sure if he were uh, writing this book today, if he would necessarily have the same emphasis, uh, given all we see in the church. But I think we still can uh, take some good points from this. Now, Notice in his quote, he affirms a belief in total depravity. He's not saying that we have any goodness in ourselves that's untouched by sin. He's not saying that. Um, Rather, what he's saying is that we do have worth and value in God's eyes, and so we should acknowledge this and find comfort in this truth. We have to maintain a balanced view of ourselves, both of the, the good and the bad. The author uh, also goes on to make his point by calling out some of the lyrics from hymns, uh, the traditional hymns in the church, um, some that we sing, some that we don't. Um, The first that he points out is from the hymn, Beneath the Cross of Jesus, which I don't believe we sing here. Um, But he says in his younger days, they would sing a version of the hymn that included uh, the following in the second stanza. He goes, and from my smitten heart with tears, two wonders I confess, the wonders of his glorious love and my own worthlessness. Now, he further relates that in an updated version of that song, the hymnal that the church he was using at the time he wrote the book had changed that last line from my own worthlessness to my unworthiness. And he points out that that distinction is an important distinction to make. Um, He says in the book, I quite agree that we are unworthy. I do not believe it accords with biblical teaching to say that we are worthless. And So again, I think you can start to see the distinction he's trying to draw here, the distinction between saying that we're not worthy of God's grace, which is true, uh, over and against saying that we're worthless, which is not biblical. Um, I don't know if you caught on, but... Um, One of the hymns that we sing here, My Worth is Not in What I Own, we sang it last week, actually says something similar here, right? um, In the final verse of that song, it says, Two wonders here that I confess, my worth and my unworthiness. So right in in our song, you actually see that balance, a confession of worth and unworthiness. But what's the title, again, of the song? The, The title is My Worth is Not in What I Own. The the entire hymn is about where we find our worth. It's not in the things we own, and it's not in our own goodness. It's entirely in the fact that we're in Christ. Um, the you know the lyrics. My worth is not in what I own, not in the strength of flesh and bone, but in the costly wounds of love at the cross. My worth is not in skill or name, and win or lose, and pride or shame, but in the blood of Christ that flowed at the cross. And so what Hokama is talking about here is actually what we sing about in this hymn, the fact that we acknowledge that we do have great worth to the Lord, but our worth is found in Christ, and the fact that we've been redeemed by him, not in anything else. And and this is Hokema's concern um, as he writes this book. Um, as he mentions in the book, he's thankful for the change in the hymn. Um, you know, we may... accuse him of splitting hairs, but I I think he is trying to be precise in what we're communicating to make sure that we are communicating biblical truth in what we confess before the Lord in our songs. Um, He also highlights a portion of the hymn, Alas, and Did My Savior Bleed, written by Isaac Watts, as potentially communicating something of an imbalanced view itself. And here, I'll admit I had a a bit of a hard time because he's He's talking about my man Isaac Watts, and it, I, I, yeah, I bristled a bit at that one. Um, you know, the, the Isaac Watts who wrote "From all that dwell below the skies, give to our God immortal praise, joy to the world." Um, he he wrote some good hymns. So if you're gonna, you know, start calling out Isaac Watts writing, uh, it's always gonna get me a little bit, uh, get my my back up a little bit, but. Uh, He points out that in Alas and Did My Savior Bleed, you know, we we sing, Alas and did my Savior bleed, and did my sovereign die. Would he devote that sacred head for such a worm as I? And I assume he takes issue with the use of the word worm to describe ourselves. Um, Although I'll have to admit, uh, I love that hymn and I I love that line. (laughs) Um, I think it's accurate, Uh, I think it checks out. But if we humor his point, if we humor what Hulka was trying to say, um, we can understand where he's going. Uh, he wants to make sure that we're maintaining a balanced view, and and Watts does, and I think the the hymn does uh, maintain a balanced view of the fact that we have we do have worth in Christ, and that but apart from Christ we would certainly uh, be yeah the word worm would be accurate. Uh, it would probably be gracious. Um, But all the same, he's calling us to balance, he's calling us to think, just at least think about these things. And so, if we only focus on the negative, we risk becoming unbalanced in how we view ourselves, and we risk losing sight of the worth that God has placed on us. Um, In particular, like I've said, those of us in the Reformed tradition are probably at the greatest risk of drifting off into an unbalanced negative view of ourselves that fails to adequately appreciate our worth as those who are in Christ. Um, we're so weary of the culture around us that we start uh, when we hear the language of self-image, self-esteem, these worldly terms, we run. Right? We uh, we tend to run as fast as we can in the opposite direction because we've seen where that leads. It leads away from God's truth. Um, we've Most of us come out of this culture that idolizes self, and so we try to stay detached from it and maintain a godly humility, um, quick to acknowledge indwelling sin and the grace that God shows us in forgiveness. Uh, We believe in the doctrines of grace. We affirm that all men are utterly sinful and without merit before the Lord, guilty of transgressing his commandments and deserving of his wrath. And it's a good thing that we believe these things, and it's a good thing that we preach them over and over again every Lord's Day. We need to be reminded of these things. Um, we need to hear it over and over again, because our own not just the culture we're in, but our own sinful nature tells us the opposite, it tells us that we're all good, that you know, we're, we're right in our own eyes and don't need to worry about our sin. Um, but we also need to remember the good news. Right? The good news that God indeed did send his son, Jesus Christ, to save his people from their sins. That Christ accomplished that salvation in full by fulfilling the law of God perfectly on behalf of his people and by atoning for their sins in his death on the cross. And just as God raised Jesus from the dead, God grants eternal life to all who are called to faith and repentance in Jesus Christ. Christian, we are most certainly unworthy of God's grace. But may we never consider ourselves to be worthless. May we never fall prey to that belief that we are truly of no value. If you want to make that argument, you're going to have to explain why Christ died on the cross to save people who are of no value. Beloved, Christ shed his blood For the forgiveness of sins because God considers his people to be of great value. God values his people so much that he calls them his own children, and he blesses them with glorious heavenly blessings. Going back before the fall, we see that God made man in his own image with the ability to serve God and to worship him. God called his creation of the man and the woman good, and he gave them the mandate to fill and have dominion over the earth. So man in his initial state was good. But even after the fall, even though man sinned and corrupted God's good creation, God still continued to care for man, promising and then delivering a savior to deliver man from sin and death to righteousness and eternal life. As we read in that famous passage from John chapter 3, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. That's not the type of language you use when you're talking about people who are invaluable or sorry, of no value. Jesus serves as the good shepherd over his flock, protecting them from the evil one and nurturing them. As he says in John chapter 10, "I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep." The shepherd doesn't lay down his life for sheep that he considers of no value. In Luke 12:7, Jesus reminds his followers of the value that God places on them when he says, Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies, and not one of them is forgotten before God? Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, you are of more value than many sparrows. Beloved, if you are in Christ, you are of great value to God. You are unworthy of his grace, but you are of great worth in his sight. Let us never forget these marvelous truths. And so it is that we set out to recover this positive view of ourselves. And this is important because as as we've mentioned, the secular godless world has taken up the charge of making the case for people to maintain a positive self-image, but God's already spoken on this issue. And so we need to ensure that we have a solid understanding of the biblical case for a positive self-image lest we cede that ground to those who are in rebellion against God. We need to be able to come in and speak truth to uh, combat the errors that are being uh, propounded each day. And so with that said, we'll move into chapter 1. We'll uh, talk about chapter 1 here quickly today, and uh, we'll save chapter 2 for uh, next week. But in chapter 1, we'll start to look at Scripture and uh, we'll continue this discussion on how Christians view themselves. Now, chapter one of the book is titled Paul's Self-Image. And as you might gather from the title, Hokema uses this first chapter to focus on New Testament passages which show us how the apostle viewed himself in light of his own sinfulness and God's grace. All right, what, what a better place to start than, than Paul um, when we look at the Apostles, and we look at the followers of Christ and how they viewed themselves. Uh, Paul was certainly not a lightweight when it came to preaching on man's sinfulness and unworthiness before God. Uh, we can think of the first three and a half chapters of Romans. Um, our family's going through these chapters actually right now in family worship, um, and so it was a good reminder for me. But you know, in the first three and a half chapters of Romans, Paul lays out the universal sinfulness of man—how all men have rejected God and rebelled against Him, um, the Jew and the Greek—and uh, you know, finally, after the first three and a half chapters, he he grants us that reprieve of saying, "But, but God, you know, but God has uh, granted forgiveness of sins through Christ, through faith in Him." But um, particularly, you know, you go to verse or chapter three, verse uh, nine. Uh, Starting in verse 9 and continuing, you know, none is righteous, no, not one, no one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Um, This is the same Paul that rebuked those in the church who were in sin and condemned false teachers and encouraged others to do the same. So Paul doesn't let sin slide by any means. Um... He also held to a very robust understanding of his own sinfulness um, and, uh, you know, applied these truths that he was preaching to himself. Um, However, as we look at these passages where Paul talks about his own sinfulness, what we don't see is Paul acknowledging his own sinfulness simply as a means of beating himself up, beating himself over the head. Rather. Whenever we see Paul calling out the depth of his own sinfulness, we see that he does so in order to elevate God's marvelous grace and redemption. That's his true focus. The author makes this observation at the beginning of the chapter, and then he follows through the rest of the chapter, uh, backing it up with Scripture. Um, Hokema says at the beginning of the chapter, Paul often saw himself as a great sinner, but he never described himself as a sinner without at the same time referring to the grace of God which forgave his sins, accepted him, and enabled him to be useful in God's kingdom. In other words, Paul never simply sat down to brood about his offenses. Whenever he thought about his sin, he thought about the grace of God. One of the clearest examples of this is in 1 Timothy 1, verse 15, where Paul says, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. There Paul refers to himself as the foremost or the greatest of sinners. You may be more familiar with the King James Version, which translates this as, Of whom I am chief. He calls himself chief of sinners, the ultimate sinner. Um, but if we look at the context of the statement, Paul isn't just sitting there beating himself up, calling himself the worst of sinners. Um, his focus is not even primarily on his wickedness. Rather, he's pointing out his wickedness to prove God's sovereignty and goodness. as an exa- It's used as an example. Um, if we zoom out a bit here, we can read uh, in 1 Timothy uh, chapter 1, verses 12 through 17, we get a better feel for the context in which Paul makes this statement. So we'll go ahead and read there in First uh, Timothy chapter 1, starting in verse 12. "'I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent.' as an example to those who are to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul's point here is that God is so incredibly merciful, so marvelously holy, that God saves and then even uses even the most wicked of men like Paul, in order to display his wisdom, and power, and glory. God can save anybody. God can use anybody, no matter how wicked they may be, and Paul says here he's the ultimate example of that. Salvation is entirely of God, and it is only by His grace that any of us are converted from godlessness to faith, and made able to trust upon and walk with Christ. Yes, we are unworthy, but we are given worth in Christ. As Paul says here, he received mercy even as the foremost of sinners in order that Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those of us who are called to believe in him for eternal life. Thank you, Jesus, for your patience toward us sinners. Um, we see a similar theme in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. There in verse 9, Paul refers to himself as the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But if we zoom out again and look at verses 3 through 11, again, to get the context, we can see more clearly what Paul is saying. You know, we our minds, when we think of um, our, un- our unworthiness might drift immediately to these examples, right? These verses where Paul, you know, says, I'm unworthy to be called an apostle. I'm least of the apostles. And, you know, we may tend to think, oh, he's, you know, beating himself up there. But that's that's not his main focus. It's serving a greater point. So let's read there in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, starting at verse 3. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, So we see here Paul's establishing the commission given to him, along with the other apostles, to preach the gospel. Paul refers to himself as the least of them because of his history of persecuting the church. But this, again, is in service of highlighting God's grace in calling Paul, converting him and sending him to preach the gospel in order that many would believe and be saved. After pointing to his own unworthiness, Paul then states that he worked harder than any of the apostles in his service, which might seem arrogant, except that in the next breath he clarifies that it was not him working, but the grace of God working through him. It was God giving him the power to do these things and making them effective. In other words, Paul is saying, I was unworthy of such calling, but God in his grace has worked through me to accomplish great things. So Paul here acknowledges that despite his unworthiness, God has given him worth through his use of Paul as an apostle, as a preacher of the gospel. So when looking back on his shameful behavior in his former life, rather than brooding on it, he's able to say here and elsewhere in Philippians 3, uh, 13 through 14, he says, "'Forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus.'" Paul never glosses over his sin, but he also knows that it serves no use to live in the past and to dwell on the past. Um, Instead, we must keep our eyes facing forward and fixed upon the object of our affection, Jesus Christ.'" and strive to live for him each day. The theme of finding our worth in Christ is replete through Paul's writings. Um, in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 4 and 5, Paul gives God the glory for the success of the ministry of which he was a part. There he says, Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. Paul's confidence here is founded upon the sovereign work of God that he's accomplishing through the ministry of Paul and others. These ministers of the new covenant are not worthy in and of themselves, as Paul says here, but they're made sufficient or worthy by God for their service. In the passage immediately preceding this, In 2 Corinthians 2, 14 and 17, um, we read, But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession, and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of Him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved, and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death, to the other, a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? For we are not, like so many, peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. Here we see the worth that God has ascribed to Paul and others in the ministry. God commissioned them to speak in Christ, and he made them the aroma of Christ to God. Those who were once foul, God made a pleasing fragrance to those whom God calls his own. But a fragrance from death to death among those who are perishing. Saints, I hope you I hope you see that we say that we can say these same things about ourselves if we are indeed in Christ. All of us were once dead in our trespasses and sins in which we once walked, following the course of this world, following the Prince of the Power of the Air, the spirit that is now working the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show The immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. We all were once like Paul, dead in our trespasses and sins, carrying around that stench of death, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. By our very nature, we were children of wrath. But God has made us alive in Christ Jesus. And it is in that identity, this reborn, remade identity, that is wrapped up in our Savior Jesus Christ and in His righteousness. It's in that identity that we find we have inestimable worth in God's eyes. Now, instead of carrying around this stench of death, we've been made into a pleasing aroma to God in Christ. <coughs> to those who likewise have been called from death to life in Christ, we are a pleasing aroma, while to those who are perishing we now carry with us that fragrance of death, a reminder of the wrath of God that remains upon them. Beloved, let us, like Paul, always call to mind our sinfulness and strive to mortify sin, but let us also remember the value that we have in the eyes of our Redeemer, who shed his blood in order to accomplish our salvation and to bring us into his family, making us, as Paul says in Romans chapter 8, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. We are Children of God, if we have repented of our sin, if we have put our faith in Christ for salvation, we are God's children. Let us take joy in that. And we can sing together this hymn that we talked about, two wonders here that I confess, my worth and my unworthiness, my value fixed, my ransom paid at the cross.